Welcome to episode 44 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part three of our series on autoimmunity, where we'll be discussing nutrition for autoimmune conditions. If you didn't listen to part one and part two of the series, I'd highly recommend you go and do that. In part one, we discussed alternative views of the immune system and autoimmunity, and also the problems with the mainstream and functional medicine views of autoimmune conditions and also their proposed solutions. And then in part two, we talked about restoring cellular bioenergetics and repairing the gut for autoimmune conditions, which is a major part of restoring health in in these situations. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about the problems with using fish oil and omega-3s to decrease inflammation. We'll be talking about how you can lower stress hormones with carbohydrates and why this is key for autoimmune conditions. We'll also be talking about why fasting and low-calorie diets end up making autoimmune conditions a lot worse in the long run, and we'll discuss why reducing the consumption of polyunsaturated fats, or PUFA, is paramount when it comes to autoimmune conditions. If you are new to this podcast, then after listening through this episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen through episodes 1 through 7, where we took some time to set a foundation for the bioenergetic approach to health. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we talked about throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any autoimmune conditions or other low energy symptoms like chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or gut symptoms, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain why these symptoms and conditions really come down to a lack of energy and I'll also walk you through the main things that you want to do as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned so that you can maximize your cellular energy and restore optimal health and get rid of these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. Obviously, the gut is a major part of this. And if we have this constant production of toxins from the gut bacteria or fungus, uh, you know, things like endotoxin, which we know are really disastrous for energy production directly, uh, you know, inside the mitochondria, it directly blocks certain aspects of energy production, particularly particularly in the electron transport chain. It also causes a host of other uh, problems and direct stress effects just from being identified. So, uh, you know, LPS or, or endotoxin is a major issue. But anyway, so fixing the gut or addressing proper gut health or supporting proper gut health is a huge part of this. But even if we do that all perfectly, but we're not eating very much food or we're not eating very many carbohydrates or eating a ton of polyunsaturated fats or we're missing out on certain vitamins or minerals, we're still going to have the same problems that that we would have, you know, in just with the gut issue, meaning that we're still going to have high stress hormones, we're still going to have low thyroid and low reproductive hormones. We're still going to be 
basically under the same conditions that lead to the autoimmune state. And so considering that, we also want to make sure that dietarily and lifestyle-wise, we're doing the things that help to move out of that state, that help to support energy production, which is on the, the most fundamental level, the direct way to drop stress, like to decrease stress and, and decrease inflammation, which are basically just signals of a lack of energy. And again, previous episode, you know, it was actually the first episode or episode one of the podcast where we discussed this in a little bit more detail about why we've, why energy is so integral to our health and why we, you know, why we view it as kind of that fundamental component. But considering that we want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to support energy production. One of the most important things there is that we're eating enough food overall uh, which means that fasting or any sort of starvation or, or caloric deficits are going to be basically slowing down energy production, increasing stress hormones, driving autoimmune states, and driving degeneration in the long term. Again, there can be particular benefits here, like we discussed earlier, where if your gut is a problem, you can have some gut relief by not eating at all or by eating less, but that's not actually fixing the, the issue. So assuming that the gut issue is aside, you know, gut issues aside, assuming we fixed the gut, uh, quote unquote, then we, you know, if we're not eating enough, we're still going to be in that same inflamed high stress state that's driving autoimmunity. So one of the most important things here to talk about all the time is just making sure that we're eating enough. Almost everything out there is suggesting otherwise that we should be eating less and exercising more. This is very commonly the case from all the kind of conventional perspectives. So for somebody who maybe isn't coming from the functional medicine perspective, but instead is coming more from the conventional perspective where it's medications and just the general healthy lifestyle of eating less food and all salads and vegetarian and low fat, those are going to be things that are all driving these autoimmune states further. So, and it's not the, it, part of that is, or a lot of that is mediated through the stress hormones actually inducing the immune profile. I want to say, point that out specifically, but just because people just to clarify, because it almost sounds like, oh, eating or doing intermittent fasting is going to give you an autoimmune disease. What you're saying more like, just to clarify for people, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but it's more that not eating or extreme caloric deficits or, uh, or a lot of fasting or basically elevating adaptive hormones like adrenaline and cortisol over an extended period of time actually induces an immune profile that moves towards an autoimmune profile. It moves yeah. towards that inflammatory profile. That that's the, that's the basis of what you're pointing out. I think. Yeah, yeah. And so we see that in two, like in kind of two very immediate places. We see it directly with what happens when we're not producing enough energy. That alone causes these danger type signals that activate the immune response, the kind of autoimmune type side of it. And then, as you're alluding to, also the stress hormones in cohesion with that signal have the same effect, where they move toward you know basically they move the immune response toward the autoimmune type response so yeah considering that eating enough is going to be paramount here we've talked about why eating more does not mean gaining more fat assuming that you are doing all the things that help to support energy production and removing the things that inhibit energy production so that's again if you're changing the types of foods that you're eating you're going slowly uh which you know changing your foods in the way that we're outlining that shouldn't be an issue again if you're in an autoimmune situation uh, or if you have an autoimmune condition and especially depending on how severe it is and where your health is at, you might be at a place where you have a lot of factors 
inhibiting energy production. And if you were to just start eating a lot more, you might gain some weight. So again, the key here is doing these things slowly and also making sure you're addressing those factors that would inhibit energy production. The problems with the gut would be one of the main things there. One of the other main things there would be the polyunsaturated fats. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier that there's, uh, you mentioned that doctor that uh, was doing basically linoleic acid depleted diets in, mm-hmm. and seeing that that it wasn't even relief. full depletion. It as from what I understand, it wasn't even full depletion. It was more just like eating a normal diet to a large extent, but avoiding linoleic acid as much as possible. Because, mm. and I want to point that out because some people within the repeat community talk about like using these very specific diets to actually fully deplete linoleic acid, and it's like skim milk and orange juice and like hydrogenated coconut oil. And they weren't even going to that extreme in these diets. It was more just like avoiding nuts and seeds and uh, avoiding the uh, the poofa oils as much as possible, the omega-6 oils, your safflower, sunflower, canola, uh, sesame, all basically limiting those as much as, as possible. And I think it was also eliminating like foods that were high in linoleic acid as well. Like if you like, uh, chicken thighs that from industrial produced chicken or something like that. Um, I think that was, those were like the basic strategies. I don't, I don't know all the specifics off the top of my head because mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, it's, I think there's more to just eliminating than just eliminating linoleic acid. Um, yeah. But it's it's interesting to see that they're improving so much with just that intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And something you said real quick made me think of earlier you were talking about properly prepared grains and legumes and nuts and seeds. And I just wanted to clarify that that generally means either fermenting them or soaking and sprouting them, which are processes that will help to deactivate the anti-nutrients in there. They don't necessarily make them great foods, but they make them a lot better. So I just wanted to make that clarification. But yeah, in regard to PUFA, so it's it's really pretty profound that you can see such a dramatic effect from uh, just reducing omega sixes in the diet uh, in people with these with these autoimmune conditions. And then the research too, they see that uh, full depletion, like essential fatty acid depletion, is what what they call it, uh, is has been shown to be protective against various autoimmune conditions and basically not only protect like prevents it from occurring but also reverses it if it's already happened so that's definitely noteworthy and it's it's also understandable because i mean basically the polyunsaturated fats do the equivalent of the stress hormones they have the equivalent actions of the glucocorticoids and estrogen as well and you know we see this again through every step of of function every step of the physiology where they basically make energy production much less efficient and uh, this is uh, this is all assuming that they're not even damaged is that they're creating you know basically making energy production much less efficient and then they are shifting in the same way that the glucocorticoids do they're shifting from the innate to the adaptive immunity basically the uh, you know th1 to th2 uh for the like the t helper cells and causing that same shift towards autoimmune, autoimmune profile yeah yeah exactly and this is, and then at the same time, especially with the omega sixes, you have their metabolites that are then also directly pro-inflammatory. So you've got yep. this. Like, I mean, in the case of omega sixes, you've got all three of these happen things happening at once, all leading to basically this snowball effect of of destruction. And uh, and with the omega threes, you have this 
because of their the icosanoids that are produced from the omega-3s, which in this case are quote-unquote anti-inflammatory, with the omega-3s you get this short-term benefit, but then you still get all the same long-term problems, the same disruption in energy production, the same susceptibility to lipid peroxidation in yep. the long-term, and then you also get the same shift in, in the immune state. So in both cases, you have these long-term issues. In the omega-3s, you do have some short-term benefit that people notice. They say they might notice that if they use really high amounts of omega-3s, they feel better short-term. But again, much like glucocorticoids, which in the short-term have some anti-inflammatory effects as well, long-term cause a lot of issues that are very well acknowledged. Well, and especially with the omega-3, omega-6, if you've been living on sunflower oil or canola oil your whole life, with high amounts of omega-6 and you start introducing higher amounts of omega-3s like it's not it's not debatable that there's shown benefits with that in the research however from our the perspective we're pointing out here is that's not ideal it's like in that case you might as well just take a bunch of aspirin or anti-inflammatory drugs and inhibit the uh the the production of inflammatory mediators because the idea behind the omega-3 omega-6 is that the omega-3 is basically in producing the proresolvins and these other icosanoids or oxylipins, all these these different mediators that have a resolving effect and an, an, an opposite effect of the inflammatory mediators produced. Uh, the omega three has produces mediators at opposite to the in, inflammatory mediators of the omega six. Um, and so, if you've been loaded up on that on omega six your whole life, then when you start using the omega threes, you basically number one, I think they they outcompete at the enzyme level for uh, cyclooxygenase and lipoxy oxygenase, and then they also produce like opposite mediators. So it's sort of, it is a strategy to deal with that, but at the same time, you still have to mitigate. Okay, the omega threes have a um, and a and they increase lipid peroxidation because they are susceptible to, to lipid peroxidation. And then they also have a, a, some negative effects in general on, meta, on metabolism. Um, and this is, we're talking long-term because there are short-term studies showing the benefits and whatnot. And then there are some interesting studies showing some immunosuppressive effects from the omega-3s. And there's some studies hinting at that uh, in different ways. Um, but even what the recent mouse, we were just talking about it before the mouse study where basically the 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 animals were given a Citrobacter rodentium, which causes colitis, and on the omega six heavy diet, they developed like a pretty strong colitis. On the omega three heavy diet, they didn't develop colitis, but they wound up going. They wound up having increased mortality from sepsis because the omega threes impaired their ability to basically deal with the uh, lipopolysaccharide or the endotoxin from the infection. So they didn't have inflammation in the colon because the omega-3s blocked it, but then they died from sepsis because they weren't able to mount an effective immune response to deal with the endotoxin and whatnot. So it's, it's you know, the colon's fine and then they died. <laughs> so it's sort of, now we're not saying that's always going to be the case for people, but it's just bringing caution to the, to the idea, this blanket idea of, well, omega-6s are good and, or are bad and omega-3s are good. And it's like, you, there needs to be context. They both have lipid peroxidation. The other thing that I see pointed out a lot too is like, oh, well, we this these omega-3s didn't cause a lipid peroxidation when they took it with this uh, antioxidant, astaxanthin or, or all this vitamin E and stuff like that. It's like in some studies with vitamin E, they do still have lipid peroxidation. I don't know specifics on astaxanthin. And then in 
the other thing is, is if the omega-3s get stored in the tissue, are they still stored with the antioxidant? And then when you have to release fatty acids during a stress response, is the lipid peroxidation just not going to happen? Like, what what is what's the function? Of, uh, what happens if you have high amounts of omega threes or high amounts of omega sixes being incorporated into the into the cellular structure besides just being stored in fat? Are they still not going to ha- undergo any type of lipid peroxidation? So those are the questions that I still, you know, that I would still ask in in response to some of these questions. The lipid peroxidation is a problem, and then I mean, some of the known metabolic effects are a problem, and then when you're seeing immunosuppression in some of the omega three studies, then it's it's also a question. And in the context of even when you look at historical trends in omega-3 consumption, we didn't have these ridiculously high intakes. And then there's populations that were healthy without having high amounts of omega-3s in the diet. And then even the ones that did have high, high amounts of omega-3s, which is usually the Inuit or Eskimo populations, they still had heart disease and heart issues and all these problems that omega-3s are supposed to protect against. And I think you actually have an article talking about this that links to an article where researchers are basically saying, yeah, we didn't find high amounts of strokes or uh, issues in the Inuit or Eskimo population with high, because they're, but people initially thought it's because it was high amounts of omega-3s, but then the, what they started to realize eventually was that, well, they just weren't going to the hospital to get diagnosed because there's not that many hospitals in the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> or they were like having the they were having the events but they weren't they weren't going to to the hospital when they had the when they had a small stroke or they had a heart attack and then they were basically looking at uh EKGs and different diagnostic tests with these with these populations on these high fish oil diets and obviously they had other components in their diet too so it's not just about fish oil so it, you know I'm not trying to make a correlation be a causation here but they also found in their exam results that they had had previous heart attacks and previous strokes, and they found it on EKGs and different diagnostics. So it's important to keep that whole picture in mind around the omega-3s. And the reason I belabor the points with these is because there's a lot of contention, not only in the alternative paleosphere, but now the mainstream is getting into the idea of omega-3s, and they're using it in pharmaceuticals for high-dose supplements that they're just giving people purified omega-3 in a pill. And it's just, <laughs> so it's like, we, Which are, oh, go ahead. Well, it's problematic on a number of levels because a lot of omega-3 supplements are rancid. Like, if you're getting your nature's way omega-3 from CVS or something, like, how likely is that to be rancid or oxidized already before you're even taking it, right? It's very likely. I mean, that's stu- there's, there's studies showing that, that a lot of the supplements are already oxidized. Yeah, exactly. And even with the, even people are talking about, like, flaxseed oil, and the benefits of flaxseed oil, that's another thing that's come to pass now. And it's like the good quality flaxseed oils are stored in amber bottles at like in, in either in a refrigeration sections with nitrogen in the bottle to prevent oxidation. It's like they can't even, it, like you, if you took it out of the refrigerator and you left it by itself for a little while, you would have a rancid oil. So, so what you're saying is what happens when you eat it in our bodies? Yeah, what happens when it goes into your body? Right. So I think it's, there's a lot of conflict going on right now. And that's why I like to belabor the points around omega threes and omega sixes, because while, and even with the doctor who was doing the low linoleic acid diet, I think he was also adjusting by supplementing with either fish or omega three supplements to counteract the effects of linoleic acid. And it's like, okay, the omega threes may help. They may actually help in some situations. But if you're having an immunosuppressive effect, you may you also may 
that like you might it may be along the same lines as using the pharmaceutical drugs to cause immunosuppression to right. deal with an autoimmune disease. It's not it's what else could be going on. And I guess what if, a good point. I guess you can go on from here, but I would say what what do you think would be good strategies to eliminate or deal with a high like a high amount of omega sixes over time? Yeah, so so before getting to that real quick, I did want to add on. So yeah, a couple of points. So so one is just that the if if you're going to make the argument that the omega 3s are not oxidized internally if they're taken with these other antioxidants and whatever, when we're looking at these conditions, you already see lipid peroxidation as a symptom so you already see that in ms and parkinson's and alzheimer's so and the and and so if we're saying that these people are the ones who should be taking the omega-3s then even if you're going to say in a perfectly healthy person that they're not uh they aren't going to become oxidized which i think is very questionable and these in people in these situations they're definitely very likely to be oxidized so that's something to consider Another thing to consider is that even if they aren't oxidized, there are still problems with intact, perfectly um, healthy omega-3s in our bodies. And this is, we've talked about this in previous episodes, and I've got some articles that I'll link to. But basically, the amount of omega-3s that we have in the structure of our cells, like in the, we'll call it the cellular membrane and the mitochondrial membrane, that is the more omega-3 in there, the greater association with faster aging, shorter lifespans, and less efficient energy production. And then, of course, we know that the omega-3 lipid peroxidation products are associated with virtually every single chronic health condition and degenerative condition. So, You need to be more fluid, though, Jay. (laughs) Your membranes need more fluidity. Right. So things can get past them. Because if they're (laughs) too solid, they're they're too sturdy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and so you you drew some great parallels with omega-3s and... the again the immunosuppressive drugs which i think is a, is so clear i mean omega 3s used to be used for immunosuppression when people would get skin grafts or transplants uh or at least i don't know if that was all there's some of that that's been in humans and some has been in rats so they were basically used just like glucocorticoids were and now you can basically see them still being used in that way or like some of the more you know some of the stronger immunosuppressive drugs and as you said that might bring some relief at the moment but what other problems is it causing you know, we know that there are massive side effects to the the glucocorticoid medications in high doses and long term, I mean, or low doses long term, but long term. You know, when they're when we're exposed to them chronically, because they have long enough to have that. You know, for us to see that degenerative degenerative effect clearly, and then that's increased even further in the more intense immunosuppressive drugs. So, yeah, I mean, when we're comparing omega threes to those, is basically. Or not necessarily comparing, but basically just saying that they parallel them, maybe in in a slightly less intense way, uh, depending on how much you're getting. It sounds like a pretty pretty bad idea. For, you know, it sounds like the exact opposite of what we want to be doing, as far as uh, supporting metabolic health and supporting our energy producing systems and preventing damage and preventing a breakdown in structure and preventing autoimmunity. And you mentioned earlier, like what can what should we do? instead uh more or less i mean especially if you have high omega-6 that's in this in this condition i know because we're also going to get into other stuff for that we can do to for for treatment options yeah yeah i mean one thing i would say is start to change the type of fats that you're eating favor the more saturated fats 
the fats from ruminant animals, beef and bison and goat and lamb, and from dairy, assuming that you're that dairy is not triggering, you know, you know, triggering for your like, causing an, uh, an immune response. Um, and then also the fats from cocoa butter and coconut oil are all good options. Additionally, you can use supplemental vitamin E if it's you know high quality in kind of moderate doses and. I mean, in the be, natural form, not the synthetic one. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't have too much else to add as far as... Maybe some aspirin. Yeah, yeah. well, so aspirin can be helpful too. Another thing as well is supporting liver health because one way that we can get rid of these polyunsaturated fats is through basically liver detoxification, through glucuronidation. And so that just depends on general liver health and general metabolic health. So... I mean, all of the supplements that we have discussed and will be discussing happen to help liver health too, because it's just a major kind of uh, aspect of just general metabolic health. But uh, so making sure your liver is functioning well is is always helpful too. Um, as you said, aspirin can be helpful. Anything that's going to to help to drop free fatty acids more or less. So vitamin B3 or niacinamide would be helpful. Caffeine would likely be helpful, which is also very supportive of liver health. So I don't know. Were there any other particular ones you wanted to add as far as PUFA go? I think I think dropping the di- dropping PUFA in the diet as low as possible is helpful. I think mm. even with people, so I think even with people who are going to drop it as low as possible, I think eating seafood is helpful with the diet in general. It they talk about ratios in some of the research. So the idea isn't, and I I, I want to make this clear: is the idea isn't to keep your eat so much seafood to account for all your high amount of omega-6 content. I think it would be better to try and keep both low and then just make sure that you're not eating like way more omega-6 to, to then omega-3, um, mm-hmm. even while both are low, which would just mean incorporating seafood uh, periodically, whether it's shellfish or, or whatnot, and you know, not loading up on higher omega-6 foods. That I think that's the best strategy overall, regardless of what point of view you come from. If you think omega-3s are good or you think that... Um, or basically if you think omega-3s are good. So whether or not you think that they're good or not, I think the as the strategy that would cover both would be to can, would keep it low and keep all PUFA low in general and just make sure that your ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 would be in a good place. I think I do think vitamin E and aspirin are helpful. I think having adequate... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, yes, if somebody is is holding that belief very strongly that the omega-3s are good, I guess this is a better alternative. But I've just seen so many people... Yeah, I've seen so many people hold it so strong. And yeah. I just like to make the the point that you're going to eat. I think eating seafood is helpful anyway. Now, without obviously right, like right. some of the ones we mentioned without going to like out of your way to eat, you know, five grams of omega-3 a day from X amount of salmon or whatever, whatever it is, whatever the mm-hmm. option is. Like, I don't think supplementing any of them is an ideal situation, but I do think eating seafood is helpful. So I think even if you were in the camp that omega-3s were helpful, if you're going to eat seafood on a regular basis, then I think you wouldn't have to worry, especially if you're keeping your omega-6 on the lower end. And I just put it that way because the diet that we discuss, that we often promote, is having seafood in the diet, whether it's shrimp, scallops, oysters, clams, mussels, whatever it is, they have mm-hmm. a decent amount of omega-3. Um, a small amount. Small amount, but it, they have enough for what the need is, sure. for what yeah. the proven, the supposed physiologic need is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to reach it anyway, and then keeping omega-6 as low as possible would really be the ideal strategy. And so that, even regardless of whether or not we disagree, because I 
I know for a lot of people, they're going to be like, okay, that's fine. But a lot, there are a lot of people who are really on the Mega 3 band camp at this point that, that it's, or bandwagon, I guess would be better. Um, it's the strategy works either way. The strategy, I think, it still makes the, makes sense regardless of what your, your particular bandwagon is at this point in time. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and I, I want to clarify too when I said holding that belief too strongly, I mean, I don't think that you're necessarily dogmatic if you obviously if you just don't believe what we say it doesn't make you necessarily wrong we could be wrong too so yes for people who still are of the belief that uh, omega-3s are necessary and beneficial in some amount which we don't agree with then yes i agree that that's at least uh, i think a good approach is what you laid out for somebody who's who's in that position so yeah no i agree there i think it's, it's helpful just unavoidable to- they're on a like the idea of going zero linoleic acid or zero Omega three linolenic. I mean, linolenic is a little easier, but DHA, EPA, whatever it is, it's just not feasible in the context of a diet that makes sense. I mean, for 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 most situations, I mean, yeah. I'm saying to go up to absolutely zero, like this, in the context of a whole foods diet that's nutrient dense and that avoids a lot of irritants and isn't high in poofa. You're still like you're still gonna have poofa in those foods, even if you were vegan or whatnot. You would you from if you were eating vegan and eating a lot of leaves or certain fruits or, or different components like that, you'd still could have a degree of omega threes, although they do talk about issues with omega threes on those diets, but you would still have some type of omega three in the diet. It's not completely unavoidable unless you start doing some, some lab based diets or like extreme dietary interventions, which I don't think either of us think is very helpful in the long run or sustainable. I don't think only living on skim milk and orange juices is is very sustainable, not from even a physiologic perspective, but just from like a mental sanity perspective. And I've seen a lot of people try to do it and I haven't seen good results from it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean don't try it if you don't want to, but I think that's just important to point out that like, regardless of what your camp is with the situation, they're unavoidable. And so in the strategy regard based on the research is to still keep them on the lower end. There's not going to be a point where, having 10 or 20% of your calories calories as omega-3 makes sense. I don't think any studies even bore that out and show that that's a good idea. Now, even when people make arguments against omega-3s, it's like, well, this study used 20% calories. It's like, or so it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a ridiculous amount of omega-3 in the diet. It's not a good thing. So most of them talk about much, much lower amounts. And that, I, that, I just, I've seen a lot of debates on it recently. That's why I'm yeah. like, <laughs> I'm going, because a lot of people are like, that's like a big thing in the sphere right now. Uh, so I want to point that out. And then real quick too, you, you kind of clarified this, but I just want to make it, I just want to point it out or emphasize it that you were saying keep PUFA as low as possible, but also it's not unavoidable. So again, I, I guess I would say if you're eating the foods that for the most part are not high in the polyunsaturated fats, but you're getting some of these polyunsaturated fats, it's okay. So like eggs are okay, even though there's a little bit yeah. of PUFA in there. Obviously not 12 a day, but... Right, right. And like meat, seafood, butter, all of these are going to have some amount of PUFA. That's okay. I don't want, you know, because as you said, you can get really um, far into fully depleting PUFA entirely. And as you said, hydrogenated coconut oil and fully skimmed milk. I don't think that those things are necessary or helpful. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with hydrogenated coconut oil, but all I'm saying is that the small amount of PUFA is okay. It's just in general, not eating sources that are high in it. Yeah, there's a bunch of factors to consider with the diet. So if you're going to go on a hydrogenated coconut oil and skim milk diet, you're going to and and orange juice, you're going to have issues with 
meeting nutrient requirements, meeting and then also meeting caloric intake without having some digestive issues. That's what I found at least, and also feeling satiated. Yeah. Um, and maybe having some gut issues with that as well. So it's it, there's a lot of factors to intake when dis, when discuss when trying to figure out you know some I, ideal or basic dietary principles. So it's in, and with those based on the ones that I see, I think that poof on the diet is unavoidable. And the strategy that I think to implement or that I think makes sense to implement, regardless of what camp you're in with poofas, to keep both low and then to maintain some type of some type of arbitrary ratio that the research has found helpful, which is like one to three or one to one or something like that, which that that just eat some seafood basically. Yeah, I don't even <laughs> think you have to concern yourself with it. Yeah. 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 So, and with maybe with some autoimmune conditions, it, it might be helpful to really focus on it, like what they found with MS, keeping PUFA as low as they can. Yeah, but I think a few grams is okay. Like, I, I don't know how, I mean, as you said, it, they weren't fully depleting it. And I'm sure if they, if they well, were. They couldn't because then patients wouldn't stay on the diet. And right. If you can't follow, if you can't do the protocol, no matter how well you write it and all the theory behind it, then it just doesn't make sense. You can, and at least in my experience, you can write the best workout in the world, but if the you can't do the workout every day or or whatever you've written, then it doesn't really matter. You have to do what what can be done, what mm -hmm. what you're able to do. And I think that's a really important point. And, and in a lot of cases, getting poofa down to zero is just not something that a lot of people can or want to do. Well, and and again, I still don't think it's even ideal. But so so just to clarify, at least what I'm saying is that whether it's six grams or eight grams a day or four grams or six grams, I'm not as concerned as long as you're not, you know, as you're avoiding the foods that are high in PUFA and eating the foods that are much more saturated in fat. And, you know, as we've kind of laid these things out. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's fair. But I think was saying within the principles that we just laid out is help as helpful. Yeah. And this is sort of little getting into the nitty gritty. I just yeah. like to get here because I, I feel like there's a lot of, especially in the alternative sphere, there's a lot of people on that bandwagon. And I think it's, important to point out the the disc like even if you have the discrepancy this is it still makes sense mm -hmm. um and i guess so if, if you want to talk about like specific strategies for for autoimmune diseases like specific supplemental strategies besides diet to recap for diet we have animal proteins and this is pretty much our re for the dietary principles are pretty much the same um for a lot of chronic diseases there's one that we didn't get to that i want to touch on which is, we, we talked about eating enough, but another major component here is getting enough carbs specifically and making sure that they're balanced throughout the day and keeping blood sugar steady. And yeah, this, this is important for virtually everything, but we just talked in regard to autoimmune conditions about how tightly correlated the stress hormones are to this autoimmune state. And the, our blood sugar is basically a barometer of how much fuel and energy we have available. And when it drops, that's the most immediate way that our bodies are raising the stress hormones. And so because of that, having stable blood sugar is incredibly important. At the same time, most of what we're told in the functional medicine approach and in the mainstream approach to stabilize blood sugar, whether it's eating nuts and seeds for protein and fat or having just some protein, you know, having salad with chicken or fish, whatever it is, all those things as far as regulating blood sugar go are basically the opposite of what we should be doing and all rely on increasing stress hormones to maintain our blood sugar. So we, again, we've talked about this in, in a, a series of episodes before that I'll link to, 
But basically, if our blood sugar is not being supplied by carbohydrates and starts to drop down because we use that sugar as fuel all the time, then basically the only place it's coming from is is from protein. And that can come from dietary or protein. Glycogen. Or glycogen, yes. Yeah. But that's also coming ultimately from carbohydrate at some point. Yeah. Or again, protein. protein. But basically, yeah. if, it's, if it's not coming from carbohydrate, then it has to be produced through stress pathways. And so the idea that we should be stabilizing our blood sugar, blood sugar by eating protein is absurd. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, your it's, blood sugar will be stabilized, right. but it's like, how are you stabilizing it? Exactly. You're That's stabilizing the with most, the stress hormones, which yeah. is basically going to drive all of these conditions even further. And when you take a something like low carb, you know, low carb diet to stabilize your blood sugar, that's exactly what you're doing is you're just keeping a high baseline level of stress hormones to drive gluconeogenesis, which is the production of sugar to maintain a steady blood sugar. So when we're talking about maintaining a steady blood sugar, we're talking about doing that without not only without requiring the stress hormones, but also by directly lowering the stress hormones. So when you take in a moderate amount of carbohydrates that your body can metabolize well, and you're eating them on a relatively consistent basis every three or four hours or so, you're, you will have you know increases and decreases in your blood sugar, but it's always going to stay in, at at least a pretty moderate level, and it's never going to dip down too far. And when it dips down too far, you, those stress hormones are released to bring it back up. And ten, you know that's when we're supposed to eat, so we really want to eat kind of before that happens so that we're maintaining our blood sugar at a, at a moderate level that's going to also directly oppose the stress hormones. So high, yeah. high blood sugar, not high blood sugar as a symptom of something like insulin resistance and diabetes where we're not metabolizing the carbs, but elevated blood sugar while we can metabolize carbs is a is a really good protective. way to keep the stress hormones down. Yeah, it's very protective. Yeah. So, uh, and, and again, the, an important clarification is that when it's insulin resistance or diabetes and you're seeing high blood sugar, that's because of two reasons. One is because of elevated stress where it's all through gluconeogenesis, excessive gluconeogenesis uh, that's leading to high blood sugar if it's fasting blood sugar or yep. if it's after a carbohydrate containing meal, it's because our bodies aren't using those carbs well and it's causing this massive buildup where they're not being used in the cells and then you can't have, you know, there's no, no space basically in the cell for more glucose to come in. It builds up in the blood and those are going to be situations where you're going to have high stress hormones and high a lot of issues and high blood sugar, but yeah. it's not the blood sugar itself that's causing the problem. It's just a symptom. The whole process is deranged at that point. Right, right. You have high insulin and then you have high gluconeogenesis and high blood sugar occurring at the same time. It's, it's a nightmare from a metabolic perspe perspective as far as handling sugar. It's mm. not indicative of a lot of people think, oh, it's just because there's too much sugar. It's like, well, there's sugar, but your cells aren't using it. Yeah. Are you going to finish more? I didn't want to. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing that with this stuff is when you have irritation in any type of the autoimmune conditions, like if you have gut irritation or you have allergic response or you have a trigger with something that, that you eat, one of the best ways to deal with that trigger, especially in my experience with things that have irritated my gut or anything like that, is taking in some sugar. It literally has, mm. particularly from fruit juice, uh, it has like a direct anti-stress response and it usually cuts the response for me. And I find that when I'm things are irritating me a lot or something like that. It, one of the major effects is that it will lower blood sugar and I'll feel that change. I'll start to get for, for me, I'm aware of what my, what it feels like when my sugar is dropped, when my blood sugar is dropped. And so I can sense like, Oh, I ate something and it really irritated my intestines and I feel my blood sugar dropping. If I drink some juice, it tends to alleviate to a large extent the, those effects. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's important because, 
for a lot of people to understand because if your if your blood sugar is all over the place or you're chronically low and trying to have it adjust with um, adaptive hormones, while you may feel better for a while for a little while with the adaptive hormones, over time you're also like relying on those hormones or pushing in a particular direction, uh, part in immune system wise and, and metabolically. So it's important to understand that maintaining blood sugar is important. And then I think you talked about the importance that fruits help maintain blood sugar better. I guess we met, we talked about it in another episode, but uh, the combination of glucose and fructose together has a more stabilizing effect on the blood sugar. And it also seems to fill liver glycogen a little bit better, which is mm-hmm. another important factor for regulating blood sugar. Um, the other thing that's helpful is having a balanced meal. And I don't mean that in the, in the traditional modern sense um that they that they put out there but meaning like vegetable a certain portion of vegetables and grains and yeah that you need to have the my food plate which is like right. some grains and some vegetables and a very small amount of of protein preferably light meat whatever it is nothing like that but it is uh, something that is important and that's borne out in the research as they talk about the glycemic index and all this type of stuff you can adjust glycemic index very easily with adding fat to a meal or adding protein to a meal or adding fiber to a meal. So it is, there is a strategy there where maintaining blood sugar is it's easier if you have some fruit and some, or maybe some cooked vegetables or raw, like a raw carrot, and then having some protein and some fat together will help stabilize. So the, you have the fiber, the protein and the fat together, whether it's a steak with, I don't know, some cooked spinach on the side that was cooked in coconut oil and then a glass of juice and a, and, and a raw carrot or an orange or something like that, that'll stabilize blood sugar a lot better than if you just had juice or if you just had juice and skim milk. Those, the fat helps a lot and the fiber helps a lot for stimulating, uh, for not stimulating, but for regulating blood sugar and helping to prevent drops. Um, and I think what a lot of people find is when they go on super low fat diets and they do a lot. And this is where I think we realized it was when we did, or at least for me, but we did a lower fat diet. And when we were doing a lot of just juice on the lower fat diet, we were finding our sugar was dropping a little bit more. And then even on a higher starch diet with, with less fat, less uh, protein was still there, but less fat and less, uh, I guess fibers or, or whatever the, you would feel that blood sugar high, really fat, particularly from white rice, you'd get that blood sugar high and then you would drop, you would drop eventually and you, you know, you start feeling a little cold and you start getting, you could feel a little bit sweaty. And I, so overall stabilizing it is uh, better. And I think the best way to do that is have like a full meal. Um, and then also you can have, you know, in between meals, if you, you can having a little juice or something like that isn't an issue either, but I think having full meals is helpful. Yeah. I mean, just to clarify, I was never low fat like you were, but yeah. Um, I, I do think having enough fat is, is really helpful for balancing out blood sugar in many instances because certain aspects of our body are, or certain parts of our bodies are going to be using fat at rest. And so if they're forced to use glucose, you're going to run through it a lot quicker. I do think it's okay to have some carb based snacks, for example, if it's a sh- small snack before a meal or something like that. I don't, you know, but in general, I do think. Or yeah, before a workout or something, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in most instances, having at least carbs and fats together, maybe adding some protein, depend, you know, a balanced meal of carbs, fat and protein, I do think is best for an actual meal. But there are instances where just carbs and fat, maybe before bed is a snack to help you yeah. go to sleep. And as you mentioned, or in the before middle of the night or something. Yeah. 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 So 
So it, it really depends. But as you said, just carbs alone and a super low fat diet, I do think is not great from the blood sugar regulation standpoint, unless maybe you have a super small amount of muscle mass or you're just constantly eating throughout the day. I think it can be pretty tough. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but, but I, I like that. And you then the meals at regular intervals too, I think is important. Yeah. Like we generally say about three or four hours between meals, three, yeah. maybe three to five depends on what's depending on how many you're eating and what's going on. Yeah. Sometimes less if, if your blood sugar is really dysregulated and you need smaller meals more frequently, that can be helpful for a period of time. Yeah. Or you have digestive or issues or something like that and you can't eat so much and in the one meal or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that you pointed out how, how carbs are basically pretty directly anti-stress and pro energy and pro metabolic. And of course this is if they're metabolized well, but I think it's really noteworthy and people will, you know, you can experience it and, and feel it if you're feeling stressed. Yeah. Of course, everybody goes to carbs. There's a reason for that. Carbs and salt yeah. and fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're feeling like you have low blood sugar, if you're feeling real irritable or hangry or something, you have some carbs, you know, or if you just experience something stressful and you have carbs, it tends to feel a lot better. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's some good, just immediate evidence that you can feel when you're experiencing that. But yeah, it's such a huge part to supporting metabolism, increasing thyroid function, keeping stress hormones down. And of course, all of those things are directly related to autoimmune conditions. All right, that's going to wrap up part three of this series on autoimmunity. In part four of this series, which will be the final, uh, the final episode, we'll be discussing supplements for autoimmune conditions and immune health, and we'll also discuss the role of stress in these autoimmune conditions. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube or a five-star rating on iTunes or a review. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast, and I very much appreciate it. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at these studies and articles and anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any autoimmune conditions, or any other chronic health conditions, or if you're dealing with any low energy symptoms like fatigue or chronic hunger and cravings, or weight gain or brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, uh, gut symptoms, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I will walk you through uh, the main things that you wanna do to restore your cellular energy, and I'll also explain why that's the key to resolving these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.